Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Master Historian Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor Emeritus at the University of Exeter in the Department of History, and he is without a doubt the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today. We are today discussing uh, his book on a brief history of the English monarchy, published by Robinson. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, why did you write this book? I wrote this book because I'm interested in the topic. I'm interested in, in why the British monarchy has lasted so long and what uh, its history can tell us about Britain and what the history of the British monarchy can tell us about monarchy. What were the earliest monarchical influences on early Angleland or England, as they would call it then? Well, what I've suggested is that there are a number of routes um, for monarchy on the British Isles. There are both the Iron Age uh, polities, if you wish to use those terms. I don't think we could call them states, which appear to have been essentially tribal and with tribal leaders who were in effect monarchs. And then much, though not all, of the British Isles was conquered by the Romans, and they brought in a different form of imperial foreign monarchy, um, which ruled over England, Wales, and part of southern Scotland. And then when the Romans went, uh, the successor peoples um, themselves were ruled through uh, monarchs. So we don't seem to have any um, early or original uh, forms of polity in Britain, which was non-monarchical. Why did the rulers of Wessex become the first rulers of England? Well, I've argued that this is happenstance to a considerable extent, but happenstance in the form that's always important in monarchical history and history as a whole, which is the combination of the skills, talents and opportunities of a particular group of leaders. And secondly, a broader, in this case, as it were, international context that provided by the Danish invasion of England, which in effect knocked out the other uh, dynasties within England. Why did England become, in terms of functionality, the leading state in early modern Europe in the 10th and 11th centuries? Well, I think that what you've got is the weakness... Oh, I, I'm sorry. I must, I must correct myself. I meant early medieval Europe, not early modern Europe. Right. Well, I think what you've got is the uh, weakness of Carolingian monarchy, uh, the monarchical tradition of Kulsi's division um, and the separation of the Carolingian inheritance. And then that itself is also badly weakened by attacks from outside and from warfare within. Whereas what you've got in England is a uh, economically strong politically reasonably united, governmentally reasonably coherent um, state country. So it's both a state, a polity, but also a country which has some sense of itself as represented through that state. Um, And I would link to that an issue which really is difficult to put one's finger on precisely, but maybe England was the right sort of size to have 
coherence and a degree of unity, whereas polities that were bigger, like the empire when it was reconceptualized as the German, what we later call Holy Roman Empire, was just too big. And maybe the same is true of an attempt to run a French polity uh, stretching from the Channel to the Mediterranean. In the absence of the fall of Anglo-Saxon England in 1066, would have England evolved into a Scandinavian state as opposed to a West European state? Well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, I think each state is, as it were, unique to itself and its circumstances. But I think you're absolutely right that a lot that we associate with medieval England and indeed medieval Scotland, um, forms of feudalism, um, close linkage or closer linkage with um, the, uh, the papacy might not have developed in those forms. I think the, the key element, of course, is that in um, England, you have prior to the conquest and after the conquest, albeit in different political, governmental and international circumstances, tensions between rulers and their uh, or some of their nobles. Now, King Canute had managed to control the system in the early 11th century, and to a degree, William I did the same. But other monarchs, Edward the Confessor, for example, or uh, King Stephen, found that process much harder. So I think there is a common tension of the, the monarch and the difficulty of, as it were, maintaining the support of the greater nobles. But I think that the specifics of feudalism would have been different if there hadn't been a Norman conquest in England. Why did William I successfully conquer England in 1066 and afterwards? Well, I think William I is, first of all, again, circumstance plays an enormous role. He is helped by the, um, the fact that he's one of two attackers, uh, the other one being Harald Hardrada of Norway. Uh, the first attacker is defeated and indeed killed, uh, but that uh, causes a considerable um, loss of dynamo and to a certain amount of military resources to the Anglo-Saxon state. Uh, William I then invades and wins. Had he not won, the situation would have been different. One needs to be reminded that there are invasions of England in the medieval period, for example, from France in the crisis at the end of John's reign, the beginning of Henry III's reign, which are totally unsuccessful. William III is successful. The monarch, Harold, is killed, which I think is very important, um, as are uh, a number of members of his family and elite. Uh, there is no strong uh, successor and there's no united opposition once the House of Wessex is uh, greatly weakened by that. And that helps William establish himself. And then, of course, um, he is, you know, benefits from the extent to which subsequent opposition is disunited and is crushed. Uh, why was King John or Jean Santerre a failed ruler? And why were there similarities in the failed uh, reigns of the following monarchs? Uh, John, Henry III, Edward II, Richard II, and Henry VI? Well, um, 
there are similarities in the sense that there are rebellions, and not all of them <laughs> are killed, of course. John and Henry, Henry III are not killed, whereas Edward II, Richard II, and Henry VI are all killed. Um, but all of them, as you correctly uh, capture, um, reflect both uh, opposition and difficulties within England, but also the extent to which failure abroad, John, as you know, um, was driven by Philip Augustus of France out of uh, Normandy and Anjou. Henry III um, similarly encountered defeats at the hands of the French. Um, Edward II and Richard II were not exactly uh, militarily successful. Bannockburn is remembered by the Scots for a reason. And Henry VI was the last king of England who could give effect, but then lost effect, to his title of King of France. So all of them lose prestige, lose the dynamic as a result of defeat abroad. And incidentally, that defeat abroad in many but not all cases, then encourages foreign intervention as in the reign of John, for example, and in the reign of Henry VI, foreign intervention on behalf of opponents. How, if at all, did Anglo-Saxon monarchical ethos survive 1066? I think it's reasonable to say that what is called the public aspect of governance, in other words, governance by public officials rather than that governance being annexed by um, uh, significant large private landowners. Um, that remained an important aspect of English rule. Uh, there are elements of it under William I. It is greatly strengthened under Henry I and Henry II um, with their determination to um, central authority on royal uh, control over justice, um, and, I, and which means law and order, and in effect, internal control. And I think that those elements can be seen in terms of continuity. Of course, subsequently, um, the uh, development of Parliament is to be seen as a continuance of... Um, and Anglo-Saxon practices of, if you like, representation. I think one has to be cautious there, but there, I think you could argue that there is some element of continuity, but I would rather see Parliament as stemming as much from the idea of consultation within a circle of King's advisors, the House of Lords, if you like, plus um, the granting of money in return for representation. I would see those as specific more to the 13th century than as stemming from links with the 11th century. Uh, are the Tudors over... Uh, I should say, were the Tudors overrated as monarchs? Well, <laughs> again, it's interesting to think of the comparisons. I mean, the uh, they did better, if you like, than the um, than the Valois, their French uh, counterparts. Uh, I mean, both dynasties came to an end, but the Valois came to an end uh, with sustained civil war and Henry III being stabbed to death in 1589. Um, I certainly think that um, Henry VII is an impressive figure. Uh, Henry VIII wastes 
an enormous amount of the national substance in a way that uh, is eye-watering, though possibly not too different from some aspects of modern government. And Elizabeth I hangs on, which is no insignificant factor. I mean, if you think about it, there there is conflict in the mid-16th century. There are the uh, risings in well, there's the rising in 1536, the risings in 1549. There is the Wyatt rising against Mary. There's the rising of the Northern Earls against Elizabeth. And these aren't essentially repeated. Yes, there is the Essex conspiracy in 1601, but that's entirely different to um, what we'd seen in the mid-16th century. So to that extent, there is an achievement, and it's an important achievement. There is a lessening of religious tension. I think the peaceful succession of James VI of Scotland as James I of England reflects a differing political context. And the long, arduous, and in part um, less than successful war with Spain in the sense of original um, uh, focus of success in the Armada in 1588 proves difficult to replicate, uh, causes enormous social, financial, and economic strain. And the 1590s are anyway a difficult decade with um, poor weather affecting the harvest disease and yet the the situation does not collapse and on top of that although these days one's not supposed necessarily to see this in a as a benign alike but on top of that the security challenge posed by um catholic um, major catholic landowners who are linked to spain in ireland uh, that uh, security challenge is overcome uh, by conquest so, yes, I think Elizabeth I is impressive and Henry VII is impressive. Quite frankly, I'm not particularly impressed by what came in between. Why do you disagree with Kevin Sharp's mostly positive view of King Charles I? Well, I knew Kevin, and I think Kevin was a great historian. But um, I have to say that um, a monarch who lands... Um, the British Isles in the uh, several wars that begin in the late 1630s in Scotland, spread to Ireland and then England, um, and in the end leads to the fall of monarchy, um, is not somebody I would regard as a positive success. I mean, it's interesting. You've had similarly good scholars present a more positive evaluation of Louis XVI than the one that shall we say, was there earlier. But I still think you'd be hard-pressed to regard Louis XVI as a success. So, no, I, you know, I think what Kevin was trying to do um, was argue that the personal rule was more successful than generally um, believed, um, and that if it hadn't been for the failures in Scotland and Ireland, that personal rule would not have collapsed. And I think that that is a reasonable viewpoint. I would agree with him on that. Um, but I do think Charles bears a lot of the responsibility as far as the failure um, of Scotland is concerned, the failure of, of his rule over Scotland. And I think then he mishandles, in a very difficult circumstance, I'm not saying I could do any better, but mishandles the development crisis or crises, I should say, in England. 
Why did James II fail as a ruler, and uh, do you adhere to the view of uh, some historians recently that he had uh, absolutist um, uh, aspirations in terms of the governance of England? Well, I certainly think he had aspirations in terms of the governance of England, which were ones that uh, would subsequently be seen as unacceptable. And at the time, although constitutionally it was perfectly possible to rule without Parliament, um, I don't think that was necessarily one that, um, how should one put it, was going to lead to him not being seen as similar to Louis XIV. Um, as far as why he fails, he fails because William III is able to concentrate his efforts and resources against James because James mishandles the crisis of 1688 caused by William's invasion. And there's a whole host of factors. You could argue that if Louis XIV had attacked in 1688, not into the Middle Rhine towards Philipsburg, but rather towards the United Provinces, you could argue William would not have been able to invade and that James would have therefore succeeded. After all, James had overcome the Monmouth and Argyle risings in 1685, just as his older brother had overcome the obviously much less violent exclusion crisis. Um, but in what becomes a very different um, set of events due to the invasion by William, James doesn't rise to the challenge. And it's worth noting as well that he doesn't exactly rise to the challenge subsequently um, of his, you know, going to Ireland and where um, uh, he is defeated at the Battle of the Boyne. So James, does, James is politically maladroit and is not militarily successful. Um, this does not suggest that he would have been able to overcome a crisis if it took the form of a foreign invasion. And you could argue further. I mean, I've, I have written on the diplomatic and international aspects of the 1688 crisis. You could argue further that he put himself in a difficult position because he neither wanted to identify too closely with Louis, nor was he a, able or willing to identify closely against Louis. And that, in, that situation uh, meant that in 1688, he lacked um, with the French, and you know, I've read the French diplomatic correspondence with England in that period. But also, he, um, as it were, um, as um, incited William to feel that if he didn't remove James, that he risked the scenario rather like 1672, when Charles II and um, the French had jointly attacked the Dutch. Overall, how would you rate the Hanoverians as ruler? Would it be correct to say that, for the most part, you view them in a more positive light than some historians? Yes. I mean, I've written biographies of George III and George II and a collective biography of the Hanoverians. I think the one who isn't up to it is George IV. Um, George III, as you know, I'm impressed by. We have discussed George III. Um, George II it proves able to learn the nature of the politics he's dealing with and actually uh, shows a degree of balanced resolution, if you like, 
Um, he loses his temper sometimes, but uh, who wouldn't um, in, under the circumstances he's facing? But I think he's actually rather good. I mean, he gets criticised because he's not exactly a cultured monarch, nor does he have the scientific issue, interests of his grandson, George III. But he is an impressive figure in some respects. Um, George I is described in Tim Bannon's short book as a lucky monarch. I'd say he's the exact opposite of a lucky monarch. He faces the crises such as the um, uh, South Sea bubble. He, of course, faces the failure of his marriage, uh, his terrible difficulties with his son, um, an unsuccessful international crisis with Russia, etc., etc. But the point is... Um, that he is able, partly uh, because he is the man who, as it were, so many of the ministers and other leading figures need, but he is able also to to reconcile himself. I mean, in, in his last years, he reconciles himself to people he earlier couldn't stand, like Walpole, like his oldest son, the future George II. And he, uh, I mean, in effect, this is a form of limited government, and he works it successfully. Why was George III so controversial ruler? I'm thinking in particular of uh, people like Burke, who viewed him as being beyond the pale, constitutionally speaking. Well, in the case of Burke, there was this notion which um, Winks had that George III had abandoned uh, constitutional principles and in particular governance of Whig principles and was, as it were, trying to revive a sort of authoritarian Toryism. That's based on a failure to understand George's uh, views and attitudes, but it was, as you correctly say, a view that was held strongly and was... Um, as it were encapsulated as part of the Whig myth of, of British history. How and why did Queen Victoria become so successful a ruler? Well, keeping going for a long time is an enormous help. I'm not sure um, that what one means quite by successful. I mean, she is certainly uh, widely popular uh, in her by the time she reaches her jubilees. I'm not sure one would necessarily say the same was true uh, in previous to that, that there had been this period when you see a degree of increase in republicanism, you'd see a degree of criticism of the widow of Windsor, um, but the last stages of her reign show um, a, a considerable degree more popularity and, of course, she's helped by the fact that, um, to a considerable extent, she's drawn back from um, political interventions that might, may have been maladroit. She'd made one or two of those earlier in her reign. Um, she is let much less uh, prone to do so towards the close. Would have the British monarchy have evolved significantly differently if instead of Queen Victoria there had been a succession of, say, either the Duke of Cumberland or the Duke of Cambridge? Yes, I think that's the case. Um, the, although, interestingly enough, in the case of the Duke of Cumberland, he doesn't make a great... I mean, his successors don't make a great fist of holding on to the kingdom of, of, of Hanover. Um, 
I mean, as you know, in the case of Cumberland, Ernst, uh, the fifth son of George III, and as listeners will know, Victoria uh, was the heir of the fourth son, Edward Duke of Kent, but um, female succession wasn't possible in Hanover, so the, so the inheritance splits in 1837. Um, uh, Cumberland, like Cambridge, um, is a more authoritarian figure. On the other hand, um, one has to be careful here. Authoritarian figures can show a capacity uh, to uh, to respond to circumstances in which they are placed. Um, I personally think that um, Victoria manages to adapt to two-party politics and to the changes of two-party politics possibly better than those men would have done. But, you know, we must give them the benefit of the doubt. We don't know what would have happened in either case. How did the British monarchy survive the so-called age of total war? I think the British monarchy survived the age of total war very well. Uh, the major loss it had, if you like, uh, was most of Ireland. And that was um, in part linked to the war in that um, home rule was the dominant uh, aspiration in 1914, whereas by late 1918, there's much more sympathy for or support within Ireland for um, uh, independence. Um, but I think if you're looking at England, Scotland, Wales, and still a significant portion of Irish uh, views, um, I think World War I sees George V identify himself and be identified with both the war effort and the nation um, to an extent that um, helps to strengthen his position. Um, as far as World War II is concerned, I think you could make exactly the same point about uh, George VI. So I think that what one has got in these cases is a... Um, is a um, a situation in which the British monarchy, helped of course by the fact that Britain is a victorious power, um, so if you can think about it, um, obviously defeat in war helps to doom the uh, Russian, the um, Austrian and the German royal families in World War One, the Italian one in World War Two. all of that I think um, is something that the British are are spared. Uh, we don't know what would have happened otherwise. How would you evaluate overall the reign of Queen Elizabeth II? Well, I've got a positive interpretation of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. I think that um, she uh, she became somebody who was identified by the vast bulk of the public in a very positive light. Um, she helped to ensure that monarchy in Britain, which when she came to the throne in 1952, um, how should one say? Um, it was very much part of British culture and British constitution, um, but there was also a degree in which you could not have uh, been certain whether she would not be, as some commentators suggested, the last of the monarchs. Um, and what we've seen is the continuity represented by the new king with very little 
uh, Republican sentiment in England, certainly, um, expressed um, at the death of the Queen. Um, clearly, she also uh, was favoured the transformation of the empire into the Commonwealth. I think it's fair to say that the Commonwealth has varied support. Some are more favourable of it to us than others. Um, but as far as her position in England was concerned, and more generally as ruler of Britain, she was seen as a hard-working, dutiful in the most, uh, you know, in the sense of dutiful to herself as a person, to her dynasty, to her people, to her country. And I think she uh, she died surrounded with the affection of her people. I mean, I don't think you could really ask for more than that. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Oh, I think that the the serious and sensible discussion of monarchy, including the present and the future of monarchy, when unfortunately so much of the stuff on monarchy is sort of fairly trivial and written by people who aren't, as it were, real historians, but just, you know, fondly uh, repeaters of um, sort of royal gossip. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind to speak with us today. You've been listening to New Books of History, a podcast channel New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black, very much. Thank you, and greetings to my Republican listeners on your side of the Atlantic. <laughs> I'm sure they wish you a hearty welcome back. Well, what I think we could all agree is that the nature of monarchy is an important part of history. It's not just an important part of, of British history. I mean, in a sense, a, pre a presidential monarch is a different form of monarch. It's an elected monarch. But to, uh, to take monarchy of whatever its form out of the equation means that one has a lesser understanding of history, both history in the past and the history of the last hundred years. Uh, and we not only have monarchical regimes and dynasties at the present moment, I mean, think of North Korea or Syria, but we also have figures on the world stage, the current ruler of China or the current ruler of Russia, who are in effect monarchs. I agree with you, Professor, entirely. Thank you again. Thank you.